Mark Buchanan wrote a book called The Rest of God in which there was an excerpt and a story that I want to begin with today because I think it's very apropos. In 1976, archaeologist Mary Leakey, rooting and sifting for bones and relics on the plains of Tanzania, made a groundbreaking discovery, a single footprint in what was once uh, damp volcanic ash. Some of you may know what that is, and I'll reveal it to you in a, in a second. But there it was, this hard ball of the heel, the light arch of the instep, the plump curve of the big toe, stamped as perfectly as an orthopedist plaster cast. And she set out to uncover what else might be buried there and dug up a length of human footprints, actually, a pair of them, like a rough basting stitch in the earth. There were 54 of them in all. And these came to be called the Lytoli footprints. And they marked a brief journey of two long-ago companions, both short and with quick, brusque strides, keeping step for step. They walked for a spell, stopped, turned slightly, glanced behind them, and then carried on. Who knows who they were? Possibly a man and his wife, perhaps walking uneasily beneath the volcano's smoking shadow. Or a father and a son hunting under a brooding sky. Or maybe two women seeking water. Who knows? We don't know who they were. The Lytoli footprints give us an intriguing, elusive glimpse into a moment of history eons old. Now, for three years, Mary Leakey's team studied, they measured, they analyzed, photographed, and took casts of these footprints. And then, when they were finished, they did a strange thing. They buried them again to protect them from damage, both natural and human. But here they made a mistake. The materials that they used to cover the tracks were riddled with seeds of acacia wood, acacia trees. And so some sprouted and their roots twined down into the brittle volcanic earth, playing havoc with those footprints. And in 1995, the site was re-excavated, the tree roots unraveled and plucked out, but now they was faced another dilemma. What are they to do with it? Someone proposed carving up the printed rock into massive slabs, crating them, and shipping them and storing them in a museum warehouse. This plan was rejected for being too complicated, too costly, likely to go awry. Someone else suggested building a museum of sorts over the footprints, kind of a private vault for them. This was rejected for being too difficult to maintain in such a remote area. So they buried them again. This time they started with a, a layer of fine sand minutely sifted and sieved to winnow out all the hint of seed. And over this they laid a thick coating of porous plastic to let rainwater through, but nothing that germinated. And then more sand on top of that, and then root-defying textiles, and more sand on top of that, and then more tiles on top of that. And they crowned it all with soil and lava boulders. And so there they lie today in northern Tanzania, the Lytoli footprints, hidden deep beneath tons of earth and things of man's devising, twice buried. It's funny when you think about it, Buchanan says, that those two people, whoever they were, could never have imagined that their day's journey on the sooty ground 
the burning sky would one day cause an international stir, that it would take Herculean effort and Solomonic wisdom and crossing wealth to simply uncover and then recover the remnants of their ancient stroll. And funnier still, that the only way that we can figure how to keep something is to bury it. Now, I want to adapt Buchanan's words and apply them to the church for this series. Listen carefully. How many times in history, and maybe personally, have we uncovered the concept of the church only to find it is too fragile a thing to preserve in the open air. And so we buried it again. I fear that in preaching this series, I will do the best that I know how to excavate the gift of what Jesus had to say to us about the church in its original form to measure the depth and the shape and the length of its imprint. But I fear that it won't take long for erosion to set in. And then for us to spread layers and layers and layers of fill over it. We'll do this first to protect it. But in essence, we'll conceal it. And then over a period of time, we'll forget it. That's the danger. I think in some sense we've done that with the church already. What was meant to serve people ended up demanding tribute from them. What was meant to restore people has, for some, turned into their drudgery. What is meant to be a beautiful and glorious bride has a tendency, due to our human mishandling of it, to become an unattractive, despotic tyrant. What is intended to be a contagious and a compassionate community can easily degrade and become into something else when people cease to allow Christ to form it, but it becomes a broken down and wind-whipped shanty. We have found ourselves spending so much energy just trying to keep this thing called the church from eroding, so much time fussing over it, that we have buried it, buried it deep, and are in danger of forgetting it. We've forgotten what Jesus says it truly is. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 12 this morning. We continue where I left off last week. Last week we began to unfold seven significant truths in this text, which I believe are the spiritual realities of what every Christian comes to upon genuine belief in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord and become members of His universal body. That's the big church, right? The universal body. But on a smaller scale, they are also the realities that kind of characterize every local assembly of believers. They are what we are actively encountering right now, even as I speak. So the question that looms before us is this. What do we come to when we come into the church? What do we come to when we come into the church? Number one, we come into the royalty of heavenly citizenship. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at verse 22 to begin with. But you have come 
to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, okay? As the church, followers of Christ have come to Mount Zion, the spiritual Jerusalem, so to speak, a place of royal residence, a stronghold of protection, the center of pure worship, the earthly dwelling place of God. That's what we said. The church, the gathered people of God, is the temple of God according to the Scripture. Amen? A refuge where love and forgiveness and grace are practiced and received. As Old Testament Zion was the earthly meeting place of the tribes of Israel, so the heavenly Zion is the meeting point of all the people of God in Christ. And the church on earth is supposed to be representative of that, a place in which we should experience God's provision, His protection, and His presence. So far, you're tracking with me, right? Here's the thing. If we don't view it as such, we won't respect it as such, right? The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthian church, strongly, strongly reminded them of that serious reality and the consequences of demeaning its place. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You could look at it if you want to, but it'll be on the screen. Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves, meaning the group, the gathered church together in Corinth, You yourselves are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. And he says, and continues with this very convicting line, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Those those are pretty hefty words, aren't they? For God's temple is sacred and you, we are that temple. Amen? I want to let that one sit with you for a minute. How serious is is that? As Paul reveals it to us. When we come into the church, and I'm talking about me and you and everybody else that's part of the church. When we come into the church, not the building but the positional reality of what God has promised us, we have really come to the city of the living God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, yeah? We are living citizens of a living kingdom. We have the privileges of royal citizenship, and that should color the atmosphere of our gathering. And as I said last week, just imagine what, this, what church could be living here on earth if we all realized what it really is in the eyes of heaven. Secondly, every time we gather as a church, I said last week, we come into the glory of angelic celebration. Again, that's in verse 22. Uh, When we worship together as the church, I believe we are in solidarity with a company of myriads of angels who are worshiping in heaven. And there's scriptural evidence to support, strongly imply that... Angels may indeed be present with us, clearly observing us and ministering to us. I gave you some verses last week, Hebrews 1.14, Luke 15.10, 1 Corinthians 11.10, and then 1 Timothy 5.21, if you're taking notes. I won't go through them again. But as the church, we will one day be in heaven worshiping God in the glory of angelic celebration, and positionally, the Bible says, we already are. 
We already are. So we can be assured that when we worship, myriads of angels accompany us with one voice and one spirit. Thirdly, the writer of Hebrews says that we come into the company of a privileged community. Look at verse 23 in Hebrews 12. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of, the righteous, of righteous men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now we're going to unpack those two verses those are going to be the next four things that we come to. So we come into the privilege, thirdly, of a, uh, to the company of a privileged community. So when Christ used the term church, what do you think he was thinking of? Bricks and mortar? Nah, I don't think so. Although he may have had that in his, in his vision somewhere, I, I really don't think he was thinking of that. He had people in mind, Right? A gathered people. When we come to church, we don't come to a building necessarily. We come to people, yes? Say it. We come to people, people. First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let's just look at that for a second. This verse came out in our elders' retreat this weekend. It's, it's perfect, perfect fit with this series. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a what? What's that? A people, right? In New American Standard anyway, it says a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a great couple of verses that is, isn't it? This is who we are. We, we don't come to a building necessarily. We come to people, firstborn ones. We have a common heritage if we're believers in Christ. The church is not a restaurant for the religious. So we don't come with a consumer mindset. It's not a hotel for the holy. So we don't come with a self-righteous attitude. It's an assembly of people that is called out from the world and whose names are referred to, um, whose, I'm sorry, whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, right? Coming into the church means coming into the royalty of a heavenly citizenship, the glory of angelic celebration, the company of a privileged community. But on a much more serious note, here's the new stuff. Number four, it means that we come under the power of divine conviction. Verse 23, second part of the verse. We come to God, the judge of all. Okay, take a breath. I ran across a great cartoon in the Jews for Jesus newsletter once. It's a father and a son sitting at the table and they're having breakfast. And uh, the little boy says, aren't we going to church today, Dad? And the father says, oh, no, the pastor's not there this week. It's somebody else. And the son goes, well, isn't God going to be there? 
power of divine conviction, right? Read an author that said, according to the ancient Jewish worldview, God is not somewhere else. God is right here. It's God's world. God made it. God owns it. God is present in it everywhere. In the book of Genesis, a man named Jacob had a dream in which God spoke to him. I read this this week, as a matter of fact, and reminded him of his destiny and his purpose. When Jacob woke up, what did he say? He said, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. See, God had been there all along, right? And Jacob just began to realize it. He's waking up from physical sleep in that context, but he's also waking up from spiritual sleep. And I've heard people tell stories about something powerful that has happened in a service, maybe in a church gathering or a concert, you know, a Christian concert or something. And then at the end of the story, this is what they always say, right? This is kind of a trendy thing that people always say. They say, God showed up, right? Maybe you've even said it. I've said it, caught myself saying it. God showed up as if God were somehow somewhere else and then he decided to intervene and came into the building. God is always present. We're the ones that show up. That's what we should say. I went to this God gathering and I finally showed up, right? When we come into the church, we have come to God himself, the scripture says, who is the judge, the judge of all people. I have often referred to the church as a safe place to hear a dangerous message, but sometimes I wonder if the church is a safe place. You know, God's here. Yes, it's safe, but it's pretty dangerous. It's a very scary thought when you start to think about God being here, right? Very dangerous if you're on the wrong side of the fence. The message of the church is that God judges all sin, which is inherent in every single one of us. The heart is more deceitful than anything else, right? Who can know it? But here's the good news. The good news is that God has judged that sin through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He nailed it to the cross. And those who have placed their faith and trust in Him receive complete forgiveness. So it is a safe place in reality for believers. Amen? To approach God at Mount Sinai, as the previous verses say here in Hebrews chapter 12, If you back up and read them, I won't take the time to do it today, but read the context. It meant certain death to the children of Israel if they approached that mountain. Couldn't even touch the mountain. But to meet God on Mount Zion here, in contrast, is to live. It's to live. As followers of Christ, the church... We meet him on the mountain with full confidence that we will not be condemned. Why? Because Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation, say it, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I just preached that to a room full of people that at a funeral. I did, I did a funeral this past week. It was kind of a difficult funeral to do because uh, it was supposed to take place 
in another denominational church. And um, I didn't know how many people there would receive a Baptist's message. It's the gospel message, right? Ah, it went really well. People responded well. Got a chance to preach the gospel. And this was one of the verses. There is no, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your life's not a failure. Your sins aren't fatal, you know. And death is not final for those people who are in Christ. Are you in him? Because just because you're in here, I can't assume that you're all in him. Is he in you? That's the only way to approach God and live, you know. If you are in Christ, then the next question is, are you living like you're in Christ? Or are you living like you're dead to sin or still alive in it? Uh, Paul asked that convicting question of all of us in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 2. He basically, uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message really hits this one personally, so I want to read it to you. It renders it almost too personally, Romans 6, 2 in the message. He says, if we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize that we packed up and left there for good? In other words, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The Bible says we can't if we're following the Holy Spirit, at least not without sensing conviction in our souls, motivating us toward repentance. Folks, if we can willfully sin and go on with life as usual and not feel any conviction from the Holy Spirit whatsoever, then maybe we had better do a salvation check. Because of what Hebrews 10 says. Turn back a couple of chapters to Hebrews 10 and verse 26. Now, of course, he's warning a people from turning away from Christ and turning back to Judaism, but we can make the application here to our own lives. If we, for if we go on sinning willfully, verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If you reject Christ's sacrifice, you got nowhere to go. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses, according to the Old Testament. How much severer punishment do you think that he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. In verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we come together as a church body, we come into the presence of God who is the judge of all people, it says here in Hebrews means we come into his very presence. And that, my friend, is very convicting, isn't it? 
I love something I heard Steve Brown of Key Life say on his radio broadcast. He's got such a simple way of getting at the heart of the truth, doesn't he, for those of you that listen to him? It's not complex, but it's very convicting. Steve, after viewing the movie release of Narnia, how many of you have seen that, Chronicles of Narnia, the movie version, was offering his comments regarding the Christ figure, Aslan, the lion. This is what Steve said. He said, I like the lion, but he wasn't nearly scary enough. Good point. Really good point. As Steve continued with these convicting yet comforting words, he said, if you've never been fearful in the presence of God, you're worshiping an idol. God is all-powerful. If you've never been confused at the action of God, you're worshiping an idol because God is all-knowing and beyond our comprehension. He says, if you've never felt loved in the presence of God, you're also worshiping an idol, for God is love. And then he ends like he always does. You think about that. Friends, when we gather together as the church, we come into the presence of God, the judge of all. And I think we like the idea of God being present with us, don't we? I do. But sometimes I think our idea of him is not nearly scary enough. The fear of the Lord, the Scripture says, and that is to reverence him intensely. But what happens when you reverence somebody intensely and you know that person is the judge of all people? There's a little bit of fear there, isn't there? There's there's such a heavy respect for that. It's a little intimidating. The fear of the Lord, the Scripture says multiple times, is the beginning of wisdom. And we need to wise up when we come into the church and realize we come into the presence of God who is judged. He is love, but he is also the judge of all. Hebrews 12, just skip down from those verses and look at verse 25. Another warning. The book of Hebrews has a number of warnings. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turned away from him and warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things in order so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And he's talking about what's going to happen when he comes back. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, and he's talking about believers here, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. That's the fear of the Lord right there. Reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Even so, as we approach this holy God with reverence and awe, as the church, there's a fifth thing that we come into. We come into the honor of a blessed company. 
Look at verse 23 again in Hebrews 12. We come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Righteous men made perfect. I believe this refers to the Old Testament saints who have died and gone on to be with the Lord. We are in company with them. That is what the Apostles' Creed means when we say the communion of the saints. I believe it or not, we are in the spiritual company of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all the patriarchs that were listed in Hebrews 11. The prophets and the godly people of the Old Testament, they had to wait for the perfection or the completeness we receive immediately upon trusting Christ. Hebrews 11. Just turn back a couple verses here. Verse 39 and 40 says this about these men and women. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect or made complete. In other words, let me explain what that means. Their salvation could not be completed until the time of Christ. It was based on Christ, what Christ would do, okay? Ours is based on what Christ has already done. By faith, they looked ahead to a promise. We, on the other hand, by faith, look back on a historical fact. How little our faith is by comparison. Do you realize the incomparable experiences that we enter into when we come together as the church? We have come to the heavenly city of the living God, to an angelic celebration, to the privileged community, to God himself, and into the company of Old Testament saints. The idea of it ought to really color the way that we worship together and the words that we pray together and the attitude in which we serve each other and the commitment which we should have with each other. More importantly, it should dictate the depth of our devotion to it. And I really, really appreciate the words of the covenant that we just recited to one another. It, it just really weighed heavily on my heart because I was reciting them to all of you again. Through thick or thin, man, through the worst times and the best times, we, like James said, are doing life together. Together. That's a beautiful thing, this community that we have and the devotion we have, we should have to it. Sixthly, we come into the presence of a faithful champion. Verse 24. And we come to, say it, what's the name? Jesus. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. When we gather together as a church, we come to Jesus. Does that mean anything to anybody anymore? I wonder. I wonder because of the flippant way that we treat each other in his presence sometimes. 
I wonder because of the downright self-centered attitudes that I can have when I'm supposed to be serving Him. I wonder because of the extreme evidences of pride in all of our hearts, because it affects every one of us, and me included, that strangles our capacity to worship Him fully. I wonder because of the lack of brokenness and repentance we all evidence on, on a, a regular basis. Joe Stowell, former president of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, once wrote the heart-piercing words that I'm about to read. He said, Our evangelical culture tends to take the awesome reality of a transcendent God who is worthy to be feared and downsize him so that he can fit into our buddy system. The way we talk about him, the way we pray, and more strikingly, the way we live shows that we have somehow lost our sense of being appropriately awestruck in the presence of a holy and an all-powerful God. If God were to show up visibly... Many of us think we'd run right up to him and high-five him for all the good things he has done, or we'd give him a big hug or ask him for an answer to that nagging theological question that we have or demand that he tell us why that tragedy in our lives occurred or, or was permitted to rob us of our joy and our happiness and comfort. You know what Joe Stoll says? We would do none of those things. We would fall trembling at his feet as his awesome, mighty, and fearful glory filled the room. Before I get into the seven churches of Revelation next week, we're going to look at who it is that's talking to the church. What did John the Apostle do when he saw this vision of Jesus? What was his first reaction? Somebody tell me. He fell down as if he were dead. That's what we would do. Oh, woe is me, I'm undone, Isaiah said, right? See, encounters with God have always had this sobering, shocking effect on people. So why doesn't it happen when we come into the presence of Jesus who is God? Maybe because we can't see him. He's nonetheless here. This is because we're failing to encounter him at all. Years ago, Vance Havner suggested that the church has no greater need than to fall in love with Jesus all over again. I've been thinking a lot about that as I study. I think he's right. I know he's right. All of us need to fall in love with Jesus afresh. Too often we get so wrapped up in the business of the church that we forget whose business it is. This was the glaring blind spot, Jesus said, of the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 that we're going to see about in a few weeks. But I have this against you, Jesus said. You've left your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Jesus continued, repent and do the things you did at the first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and I'll remove your lampstand from you. You're not going to be a light to the community anymore. You need to re-fall in love with me again. Someone aptly said, many of today's young people have little difficulty believing that God was in Christ. What they find hard to believe is that Christ is in the church. I hope that's not true. Jesus is the head of the church. But you know what's a scary sight? A headless body. Right? 
And not only is it a scary sight, but it's absolutely worthless, youth, useless. A headless body is useless. If the people who gather don't proclaim and celebrate Jesus, Jesus as Lord, Master, and King, whatever they may be, they are simply not a church. And there are many groups around this country that get together and they don't celebrate Jesus. Now, that is not the case here. Praise God for that. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, says 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is only one who stands in the gap, one who goes to the mat for us, one bridge builder, one champion that won us redemption at the cross, and there is only one name that must be proclaimed in the church, Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus. The angel revealed it to Joseph very clearly. And you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. He's the church's one foundation, the chief cornerstone, the chief shepherd. He alone is the mediator of a new covenant. Coming to church means coming into the presence of a faithful champion, and his name is Jesus, it says. Do you know him? The seventh thing, and the final thing in this passage as we close, we come into the security of complete forgiveness through Jesus. Look at what it says. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's blood that forgives us. Friends, you can't speak of forgiveness without speaking of Jesus. And you can't speak of Jesus' forgiveness without speaking of blood. It is only, only through the blood of Christ that we have peace with God. That's Colossians 1.20. And forgiveness of sins, that's Ephesians 1.7. And Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Abel's blood cried for for vengeance and justice in the Old Testament. But the blood of Jesus, says the writer of Hebrews, offers us grace. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? Now, when you came into the church this morning, did you contemplate all that? Did you come knowing that you were entering into the royalty of heavenly citizenship or the glory of angelic celebration or the company of a privileged community? Did you expect to come under the power of divine conviction, into the honor of a blessed company and the presence of a faithful champion? Did you, upon joining with this body of believers and reaffirming your faith in Jesus through the covenant that we shared this morning, Did you realize that you had entered into the security of complete forgiveness? Well, realize it or not, that is the reality, folks. It's the reality. That's what Jesus would want to say to us this morning. And so, as Hebrews chapter 10 says, beginning in verse 19... Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... 
by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a high, great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another through love and good deeds, right? Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging other, one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day? What day? Yeah, you just looked up and I love that. He's coming. He's coming. And that's the reality. And folks, if I haven't told you in a long time, I love the church. I love you. I love this people. They're not always nice. I'm not always nice. But we are one. We are his body. We are his bride. That is a great mystery. It defies explanation. It escapes total comprehension. But I can live with mystery. How do you feel about it? This series may raise more questions about the church than it answers, and I really don't care. I think it's good. I think it's really good. It'll drive us to the Scriptures. It'll drive us to Jesus. That's okay, because the older I get, the more mystery I am willing to embrace about Jesus and His church. Because I'll tell you, the more, the more I study this Scripture and the more I preach this Bible, the less I think I know. So, you know, those of you that call me up on the phone and say, I need an answer to this question, you might get, I don't know. Should pastors say that? Of course, they better. But the longer I live, the more precious the church must become, even in the midst of faults, because in serving her, I am serving the Lord Jesus Christ, whom I love and I adore. You cannot serve Jesus and not serve his body. Some years ago, I was moved by the story of a pastor who had celebrated his 50th year of being a pastor. This blows my mind. The church gave him a big celebration service and he was getting ready to leave the platform after addressing the congregation and he turned and said, you know what? It is broken, shaky voice. He said, I still remember exactly where I was when God called me into the ministry. I was just a young boy in a country church singing a hymn. People kind of chuckled and he said, no, really, I was just singing a hymn. You want to know what it is? And they were all kind of kidding him and he said, I'm not only tell you what the hymn is, but I'll recite all the verses in his 80s, right? So he turns to the church, closes his eyes, this white-haired older pastor, now soon to be in his 80s, standing there in front of his church, closes his eyes, and he says from memory these words, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield. 
the brighter bliss of heaven. He had given his guts for that church. For the church that God loves and calls his bride. And after 50 years, I'm sure that he would tell you that it was not all a bed of roses, not on your life. Sometimes, often too many times, people view the church as, and I have done it as well, with the attitude of a comic strip character who said, I love the church, it's people I can't stand. But the undeniable truth is that it's people who matter to God. Jesus loves people. And the bride of Christ, the church, is people. And the world outside is not confused about that fact. Trust me on it. When you ask somebody about the church out there, they know it's not a building. They know it's a group of people. They don't persecute a building, right? They persecute people. Are we willing to accept that? Friends, when we're working together for the cause of Christ, when we act like the true church of Jesus Christ, one body infused with one spirit, called in one hope by one Lord with one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and pouring out through all of us and living vibrantly in all of us, that is life-giving. It is life-giving. And friends, that is what people are searching for. They want life. We need to be giving them life. So go out and give them life for Jesus' sake. Amen.